0: Well, good morning. It is good to see you guys this morning. It is a gorgeous day outside. I think that I haven't seen it this clean and beautiful in a long, long time. Uh, One of the things I just want to thank you guys for being here um, over is just because you guys serve so well and you do so many things. Some of you are, you're newer, it's been the last couple of weeks and that you've been here or maybe a couple of months. We want to encourage you to possibly just take that next step. And what is that next step? But it's membership. um, You may have come from a church or you may never heard of membership, but it's not like a club. Membership is more of a an opportunity for us to align ourselves around kind of the same values and vision and, and direction. And so we want to encourage you that if you're considering making Olive Branch your home, really the way to do that, even if you've been here for years and you're already serving, is to become a member, to get connected in and to, uh, to be a part of membership here at Olive Branch. It gives you a lot more voice and it gives you a lot more knowledge about who we are and why we're doing what we're doing. And so over the next three weeks, there's going to be, um, one of our elders is going to actually be leading a, the membership class on Sunday mornings. And so we want to encourage you guys, if you have not signed up or been a part of our membership classes uh, and become a member. We want to encourage you to do that. In the meantime, we are here this morning because we are in the book of John. How many, have you guys been enjoying the book of John? I have been enjoying this book a lot. So, and so we are diving into to another aspect of this book. And really, it's led me to consider worship this morning. As we've just ended worship, I mean, if you ever think about it, what it's supposed to be is our encounter with God. And have you ever stopped and actually how many of you guys have ever actually encountered somebody like a, a famous movie star anybody here encountered a famous movie star before actually I, how did you respond do you know it's like some of us are like I wouldn't know how I would respond but I think most everybody in the room has a tendency to believe that if they met somebody famous or powerful they would pretty much be like I got this I'm normal no big deal I'm fine they're, they're just a human being. Anybody else feel in the similar vein as I do? I thought that was me too. You know, I'm like, Psh, I got this, no problem. And then I, then I went to, I've been to enough like uh, conferences and things. I found out that I know why I'm that way with movie stars. They don't matter to me. But you put a really good pastor on stage or somebody's books I've read or something like that. Suddenly I start doing dumb things. I started like sneaking around, trying to meet the person. Like, I try to meet somebody who knows the person to set me up, just to say hi. Do you notice me? I- I'm great, you know. I just like the other day, David Platt went to Sandals, and I know Matt who runs Sandals. And I'm like, when David Platt was done, they ushered him into the back room. And I'm like trying to find Matt, their pastor. I'm like, hey, Matt, hi, how you doing? Hey, so uh, how's what's David Platt like? How's this like? And she's like, I don't know, I haven't really talked to him. And I was kind of like, I was so disappointed because I'm like, oh, my connection didn't work, and I just stopped. The, and I thought, this is so silly. Oh my gosh, I just got starstruck. And I was so like, you know, feeling stupid like I do right now. But the reality is that I realize it's mostly men who I think are, are will, a little less honest with ourselves. We're like, uh, I wouldn't be starstruck. i would just be like, what's up, dude? You know, like we, we control ourselves. And I know we're all liars. All, every man in this room is a liar who thinks that way. Because the bottom line is, you remember what you were like in fifth grade when you started liking girls. You're all awkward and anxious. You're picking on her. My daughter's like, Why is this kid picking on me? He likes you. That's how we we, we do weird things when we think somebody's above us. If the popular girl at school, the pretty girl in junior high showed up and, and was trying to talk to you, you're kinda like, uh okay, so I went through a major awkward phase in junior high. If you didn't, I hate you. But the reality is that I, I was awkward looking. I was awkward in my actions. I'm still awkward looking and awkward in my actions, but not as much as in junior high. And, and so I a pro, you know, if I liked a girl or something, it was sort of like, uh, hi, uh, okay. You know, it's like, that's and it was, it was ugly. It was horrible. In high school, it got a little better. Eventually, I, yes, I did get married. So it somehow worked out. And my wife is amazing. And so I, I totally like, I moved up the ladder. So the reality is that we act awkwardly though just like I am right now, acting awkwardly, because when you're in the presence of someone powerful, presence of somebody that you feel is above you, there's a sense of humility, a sense of, like, you don't know what to do with yourself. And I believe everybody in some way has encountered this reality. The truth is, you should encounter it every Sunday when you walk through the doors. Because God is far above us, far more powerful than us, far more famous than us, Far more incredible and amazing than you can imagine. He, so intelligent, he designed the information within ourselves. So powerful, he placed the universe in its spinning rotations and the planets and everything else moving throughout galaxies. It's incredible what our God has done, and we come and we encounter him every Sunday. And when we come to him, some of us we get passionate. It's worship looks crazy, like this guy's like, "What's wrong with him?" You're like arms raised and you're shouting. Other people you get like acidic, and you're just like, "Oh, you're rocking in your chair." I've seen all this stuff happen. Some people they get all electric. Most of Olive Branch is far more like the like the um, the boiling pot. You're standing there just holding it in, and then it's just coming out occasionally in your song. We, we we're very passive. I want to challenge you this morning that perhaps the God that we know calls for a greater response than we possibly could have given him this morning or at any other time in our lives. And that you can know this God so well that it would cause you to be awkward in a sense before him because of how incredibly huge and amazing he actually is. And I think this is where John is turning as we get back into the book of John. In John chapter 1, we're going to be looking at 14 through 18. He's already dealt with the fact that there is this one who is the word, and this word was God, and this one who is God has been the light that's broken into the world, and the darkness tried to deal with it, but it couldn't, and so it was overcome by the, it wouldn't overcome the light, but it was dealt with by the light. The light still is shining. It's been testified by God, and we are all to be witnesses of that light, and we kind of left with that thinking after last week, and then John begins probably the apex. It's the highest point, of the passage. He's been building since the beginning about this word that's the light and it's shining and all this stuff. And now he's going to land smack dab in the middle of it here in John chapter one, beginning in verse 14. So if you've got your Bibles open to that, we will take a look at this. It says, and the word became flesh. So referencing back to John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He says, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Fascinating to me as we begin to dive into the conversation about God, we realize right there in, Gen, in, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we talked about the fact that the Word was God, and they're satisfied. They don't need humanity, they don't need creation. The Father is satisfied in the Son, the Son is satisfied in the Spirit. They're all completely content, and yet God desired to make the universe, to make you, and to make me. There's something about You and me, he wanted, he didn't need us. And there's kind of a a danger there that we can feel like, wow, God's so aloof then if he's content in himself, if he's way out there, how could he even understand me so that I would even want to worship a God? I mean, a lot of this comes out when people are struggling with the problem of evil. They're like, with all this evil in this world, how can God even care? He's aloof. He's gone out there. He doesn't care. It doesn't matter. And you don't want to tell you, John's saying, no, God does care. And that's one of the reasons we should worship because we should worship because Jesus came to relate to us. He came to bring us into relationship with him. And I want to kind of lay this out. It starts this way in verse 14. And the word became flesh. Right there, Christmas music should be rolling in your head. But the reality is that this is God became human. God, who who is fully God. Look at Gen- John 1-1 again. He was with God and the word was God. Fully, 100% God has become flesh. Now, it's important that we note that this word flesh is the most basic unit of human existence. I mean, you're you're getting the most base idea here. You and I have skin, we have muscles, we have hearts, we have brains. This is your flesh. And really, when we talk about the incarnation, which is the big word for the enfleshment of God, God becoming human, God didn't just look like a human. He didn't just appear like, ooh, I'm a ghost and I look like a human. No, he wasn't some floating around spirit he was literally fully one hundred percent human. this is important to note. I remember back I used to work at a place called Spiral International. They, they make this these, uh, these things called vibrating feeder bowls, and what they are is you pour a whole bunch of parts for an, a factory or something and, and while they 're vibrating on this kind of vibrating stand. The parts will rotate in a counterclockwise or clockwise manner. And then they'll all align for an assembly line and roll out down the assembly line. Fascinating to watch the men who designed these work. They would weld the ramps and figure out the designs to move the parts perfectly. Every single one, 100% had to go down that line. One of these guys, one of these smart guys I was talking to about the Lord. He was a Christian. and As we're getting the discussion, suddenly he started saying things that were just like weird to me. He's like, yeah, you know, because Jesus never lost his muscle tone. I'm like, what do you mean? He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Of course he lost his muscles. He's like, no man, he was God. You know, yeah, he ate, but he was never really hungry. He was pretending to be that way, you know, and he starts getting it. I'm like, well, on the cross, I mean, he's bleeding. He's like, yeah, but he let himself. He he wouldn't die. He had to give up his spirit because he was God. He was fully in control. He he was the perfect human. And I'm like going, wow, that's really odd because I had been studying the humanity of Jesus in my seminary class. And the reality was that, no, Jesus was truly hungry. He truly thirsted. He really got tired and needed to sit down. He probably became emaciated and was completely skinny after 40 days and 40 nights, probably barely moving, sustained at least by some of the energy of God. But Jesus was fully and really a man. And this guy had gotten so into the debates that Jesus was God, he had lost track that John says he came in the flesh. In fact, what's interesting about the book of John is that there's no better book to indicate his humanness. The book of John is constantly referencing how he's thirsty, he's hungry, he's tired, he's this or he's that. All of these human emotions, all these human psychologies, all these human issues exist. And somehow in the church, we've come to this thought that somehow it's bad to think of Jesus as a human. We're good with baby Jesus, but once he grows up, no more, baby, no more human Jesus. You know, we can't have a Jesus that's thrown up. You can't have a Jesus who stubs his toe, who cut himself while he was out digging trenches, who got tired and a little frustrated a little bit with things wouldn't move right. You don't think he was sitting there with one of the stones and trying to get that, that, that door correct. And it's not getting in place. And he's just sitting there going, I could use creative power and just go, boom. You know, but he doesn't. In fact, he doesn't even know everything. He literally says in the gospels, I don't know the day or the hour I'm returning. The father knows this. I don't know this in essence. And you're going, wait a minute. He's limited in his knowledge like a human. He's limited in his power like a human. There's all these aspects about Jesus that makes him completely, 100% human. Yes, to the point, he probably even had gas, okay? That's not bad. It's, I'm trying to give you guys a sense of how human he is. no. It's important that we grasp this because when I say he's fully human, I don't mean that he sinned. Jesus never sinned. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was fully human. He can sympathize with human limitation and weakness. He's not just satisfied up in heaven, enjoying the perfection of God and not understanding how humanity needs God. He's been human who knows fully well what it means to need his father. He understands our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without what? Say it out loud. Yet without sin. Important that we note that. There are a lot of people out there who think that because Jesus never sinned, that he can't relate to the human weakness. That's the contradiction of what this says in the book of Hebrews. He fully can relate to our weakness, and yet he's never sinned. In fact, in theology, Jesus is called the man of sorrows. And not because of what he, that he called, held our sorrows only, but because Jesus was a man who was fully tempted. In fact, it will say it says that in every respect as we are, he was tempted. Temptation is not sin. If you're tempted, you haven't sinned. You, when you're tempted and you give in, then you've sinned. Jesus felt temptation, but he felt it so heavily because he never gave in. I think I never quite understood the weight of that until I was reading C.S. Lewis's um, Space Trilogy. In his second book, I believe it's Perelandra, the, the the hero of the story named Ransom somehow manages to find his way to Venus, which is pop. It was just like this Edenic po- uh, populated planet. It has yet to sin. There's there's beings on it, and this other being, this other human who's been possessed by the devil, has managed to find his way there with Ransom. And, it's, and the picture is like this devil's just wearing human skin. Well, he's sitting on this planet, and his sole job is to tempt the Eve on this Venus Eden. And in this picture, which is, which is obviously um, from, the, from the early 50s and all their ideas of science fiction and stuff, he's sitting here cutting open frogs just for the fun of it and flinging them away, not ran, the, the devil character. Ransom's sitting next to him at a fire. In the middle of the night, the devil character just looks at Ransom and says, Ransom. And ransom says, What? Nothing. Ransom. What? Nothing. Hey, ransom. What? Nothing. So ransom goes, I'm not gonna fall for this anymore. He's gonna say my that's ridiculous. And so suddenly the, the devil character goes, Hey, ransom. Ransom. Hey, ransom. 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 Hey, ransom. What? Nothing. The preceding paragraph that follows describes how the devil character sits there and all night long goes, ransom. Ransom. Hey, ransom. Ransom. Hey, ransom. Ransom. By the middle of the night, suddenly he goes, what? Nothing. That's temptation. Never stops. Constantly presses. Hey. Hey want it. Come on. Come have it. Jesus. Hey, Jesus. 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 Hey, Jesus. 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 And everywhere he went, and everywhere he walked, all he heard was temptation yelling, Jesus, take this. Jesus, have this. Jesus, grab me. Jesus, take me. Jesus, think this way. Jesus, think that way. And he walked through all of his life, and he never said what? He never Acknowledge the temptation to bring it in. He never sinned. Can you imagine living your entire life with every temptation bearing down on you and you never give in? We have not felt the weight of temptation. But He understands the power and the weight of temptation and our weaknesses, and so He can sympathize with you. He was fully man. So the conclusion the, the author of Hebrews says is let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the help of time of need. I really think John is connecting this idea of prayer here where he says he came in the flesh, he dwelt among us. He's saying, listen, if it, we, he knows us, go to him. Why, we need to be praying more. God gets what you're going through. God understands the temptation. God understands the struggle. God understands the mess of life and the weaknesses because God became human. And he's just waiting for us now to approach. He's waiting for us now to come into his presence. What's why, I, why I think that prayer is in the background in this chapter and in this verse is because of the next terms. Look back with me in the book of John at verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That term dwelt among us is actually the word set up his tent or tabernacled is another term. And what's interesting is everybody sees the same thing. All the scholars, when they read this, see the same word because that word is used over and over and over in the Old Testament to mean setting up the tabernacle. This behind me is the tabernacle. It's a picture of the tabernacle, not the actual one. But the reality is this is a picture of what the tabernacle might have looked like. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people, in order to have the presence of God with them because of sin, needed a way to deal with sin. So God, in his wisdom, granted them this grace called a tabernacle. The tabernacle was established to be in a certain location at the center of all the other tribes in the middle of their wanderings. And if you send this guy, bad guy. Naughty sinner. No, you had to come forward with your animal bring it to the priest who's over here washing up. He would come forward, sacrifice the animal. They would then put the animal here and have barbecue with it or burn it completely up. Meanwhile, you were being atoned for for your sins. Some of that blood would later be taken and spilled on the altar in the holy place to atone for that sin. But once a year, one person in all of Israel was allowed to, named the high priest, was allowed to enter not just this holy place, but into this very section called the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God, the Shekinah glory himself shows up. Notice the word glory. Notice the word presence. Notice the word tabernacle. All of this is found right here in our verses. Because what Jesus is, is he is the tabernacle. He is the presence of God. He is the sacrifice that allows God's presence to be in our life. And what you have in the Old Testament was a picture of what Jesus was on earth. He came in the flesh. God's presence is here and he has tabernacled. He has dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. We got to go in and look at his glory. And what did we see? We saw glory like that of a son from a father. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We'll get into the grace and truth a little bit, but I find this fascinating. It's the glory of a son as a father. Um, I'm a dad, and I I can speak for dads in the room, but there is something about when when your son just does something amazingly right. Does something so amazing that it, it just builds up pride in you. Something about when you're, even when your daughter does it, and there's this primal issue in a man, and I really think, I'm speaking to men for a second here because I can reference this. And, My son, Nate, is deathly afraid of heights. I mean, deathly afraid of heights. At Forest Home, there is this creek that runs down and divides the properties up. And there's a whole bunch of camps on one side of the creek. And there's the main camp on the other side of the creek. And there's this bridge, a suspension bridge, that crosses over the creek. The first year we got to go to Forest Home, we walked out to that bridge, and, you know, we all kind of headed out, and Nate stood right on the edge of the bridge. He didn't step on it. He's just staring at it, and he would take a few steps forward, and he just fell on his knees and practically crawled the rest of his way about 100 yards over this bridge, so scared that he was going to fall, so scared of the heights. We worked with him. Year two, he's walking across it. Year three, he's running across it. You know, he's gotten used to that, but there was this, there's these um kind of these this area there that you get to do zip lining and some various. There's like the swing now and stuff like that. And I, I figured, you know what, my son's so scared of heights. I know what I'm gonna do to, you know, for his man journey when he's 18. Like, hey man, you're a man now, kind of thing. And I'm thinking, I'm gonna have him get on the zip line because there's no way he's gonna get on the zip line until he's 18, not with this amount of fear. And yet last year, last summer, we show up there and he's declared, "I'm getting on the zip line." I'm going you barely weigh enough for the zip line. You really want to do this. It's scary up there. You're like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And he found his way in line, you know, all the blood out of his face, white and scared to death. But he's sitting there with the harness on. And he's walking, and he chose his mom to go with him. I'm like, thanks. But the... uh, (laughs) And so he manages to get up there, and and he locks in, and it's only one. It's the big one, too. It's the big, long one, because the other one had been closed. And he gets locked in, and I'm on the ground, and he goes, and that's, and suddenly you see him walk up to the edge. I'm going, he's going to faint. He's going to, he's not, and he gets on, and off he goes. And I've got the recording, and I'm... I am like shouting, I'm whooping, I'm hollering. I've got everything. I want to cry right now. I'm so proud of this kid. And that's the reality of it. It sinks in primally. I probably was beaming. If light could have come out of my face, it would have. And that's exactly how we feel when our sons do awesome things that represent the family and courage and bravery. And that's how the father felt about Jesus when he bore our sins on the cross. The father in heaven beamed pride, and joy. In fact, when he knew his son was being obedient and lived obediently and got baptized, he had to shout out from the heavens, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How much more should we who are the recipients of that grace not shout out, this is our God in whom we are proud and we love desperately. Desperately. Should it not just foster, not just prayer, but an intensity in our worship where if the Father is willing to beam and drop all his dignity and speak from the heavens, should we not drop our dignity and shout for our great and glorious God? Is he not worth a little bit of embarrassment, a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of, dare I say, shame on our part to glorify his name? At your workplace, in your family home, on your Sunday at church, wherever you find yourself, is he not worth it? I think John is sitting here and he can't help it. He says he became flesh. We got to see him. The tabernacle was here. We got to know him. We got to see his glory. And the father beamed because on the cross he gave out grace and truth. Wow. What a God we've got. We've only begun to get to know him. How small is our response in comparison? And I think we need to be careful though. You see, some of us have gotten to the place where we we feel like we know Jesus well enough. He's like, he's my buddy. You know, maybe you've seen the YouTube video. Jesus is my friend. Just look it up, it's horrible. uh, But the reality is that some of us have gotten to this place where yes, Jesus says, I'm your friend. But it has a radically different context in the ancient world than it does today. I mean, friend today is as much as the click of a button on a a screen, right? But true, friendship where one is willing to sacrifice your life for somebody and die and even sacrifice all your finances, and that was friendship in the ancient world. And Jesus says, I'm your friend, not just I got, hey, buddy. And the danger is we should never equate Jesus simply as buddy. He says here in verse 15 that John actually understood this, John bore witness about him and cried out, this is, was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, John was six months older. John had every right to claim superiority in their culture. Jesus shows up and actually looks at John and says, there's been nobody born of a woman like that guy. How'd you like that endorsement? Jesus endorses John at that level. And John says, no, 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 he's not my buddy. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And there's a difficulty for us who are so familiar who have no kings who who don't understand hierarchy as Americans. I mean we we would look at a president and soon throw him out for ba- for things we don't like. You don't do that with kings. They throw you out. And the reality is that Jesus is our king. Jesus is our potentate. He's our Lord and master. And there's a reality that we come to him with reverence, though he has loved us with such a great love. Though we can access his presence and he knows you by name, it does not mean we get to simply go, he's my buddy. There is a reverence. He came before us. He is greater than us. He will always be greater than us. And there's no degree in which we will reach in churches nor in the world that will ever make Jesus beneath us. And so that fuels us in the sense that he is the one to be worshiped. He is the one to enjoy. We talked last week that you've been made for a purpose. And that purpose is simply that we glorify God, shining him out, and we enjoy him forever. The enjoyment part is this worship, this receiving of what he's given us, this enjoyment of who he is and the wonder of who our God is. Now, Why else should we worship God? I think that's awesome that he's come to relate to us. Amen? Anybody else like with me? He's like, that's cool. Very nice information. I shall write that down. (laughs) I hope that's not where you're at. I hope we're allowing this to settle in a bit because Jesus has another, we have another reason to worship Jesus because he came to give us the ultimate grace. There is an ultimate level of grace going on here. And I want to point this out. It starts off this way in verse 16. He says, and from his fullness, meaning that fullness of glory we just saw, we have all received grace upon grace. Weird, weird term, a lot of debates about that, those last three words, grace upon grace over the centuries. Uh, what is this grace? It's, a, it's an overwhelming, we get grace, and then we get more grace, and we get more grace, and we get more grace. And get more grace. And some people have used this as an excuse to sin. Um, really, the best way to translate the text is grace that actually replaces grace. He has given us a grace that replaces grace. We go, well, what does that mean? How can you have a grace that replaces grace? Except for the fact that the law of Moses was a grace. Grace. See, we, in the middle, God says, shouts out these Ten Commandments, gives them, and he starts painting. He walks Moses around in the heavenly tabernacle, and Moses is drawing pictures and getting all this information. He walks off the hill, walks down the mountain, and the Israelites are bowing down and doing horrible things in front of a golden calf. And God, in a response, tells Moses, I can't go with you guys. Moses goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Mate. No, 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 no. You need to come. You need to come with us. Otherwise, we're doomed. This is going to work. You need to come. And God says, All right, fine. Well, you cut out some new tablets. We'll put the Ten Commandments back on those. Make sure my covenant is clear. You get up here. I need to see you. And Moses cuts them out and walks up the mountain Sinai. And somewhere in the midst of this story, he says, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see you and all of who you are. I want to know who you are. And all he gets is a slant opportunity to see God pass by. And it's so powerful, his face is glowing when he walks back down the mountain. In the midst of this, God shouts out his name. The Lord, the Lord. And actually, we have it right here. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. In the midst of his name, God proclaims his power and truth and justice and his grace. Full of grace and truth. And it's odd that these two things come together in the midst of his name. It's almost a summation of the name of God. And as you dive into this conversation of grace and truth and all these things, you realize that this law that he will receive from this point on was a lot like the Goonies. Anybody watch the movie Goonies? Any Goonies fans? I threw my sister down the stairs and I played it on the dog. I love that. I love that movie. First movie I ever rented as a kid. Probably shouldn't have rented it when I did. But... You know, I watched Goonies, and there was something about the idea of a kid going up into his parents' attic and finding a treasure map. He pulls a treasure map out, and all these ragtag, ragamuffin kids are like, yeah, let's go find the treasure. Nobody else has. This seems like it should have been. Nope, let's do it. And off they go. And spoiler alert, they find the treasure, right? Sitting there with the treasure, you know what's funny? Nobody took the map after they found the treasure and went, we got to keep this. They set the map aside. They grabbed everything they could from the treasure. The same thing is what's going on in the text. Moses was given the treasure map. Here's the tabernacle. Here's the beauty of the laws. Here's all the rules and all these rules and all these things. If you'll follow them, if you'll walk with them, if you'll go with them, I will give you the tre- You'll find the treasure, my presence. I'll give you a treasure map. It'll it'll start laying out what my Messiah looks like, how he's gonna act, when he's gonna come, all the rules he's gonna follow, how he's gonna bring my presence. It's leading you all the way up until one day you pick up Jesus and you go, it's the treasure. And how many of you in this room this morning are still restricted by your guilt because you're living with the treasure map? You know truth and truth beats you up every day. You had a rough week and your name got called Ransom. And you went, what? And you grabbed. And you come in here and you're thinking, I can't worship God today. God doesn't love me right now. I've got sin in my life, man. But you know, it's not about your sin once you've received Christ because He already gave you everything you need for Him to be pleased with you. He gave you the righteousness of Christ. The reason we confess sins is not so that you look better, it's so that you remind yourself that I don't come and approach God through what I've got, I come and approach God through what I've been given in Jesus Christ. I don't come approach God with the grace of the law where I got to bring my sacrifice and make sure the rules are right before it's even going to be received by God. I come and I approach because all the rules have been fulfilled and Jesus already dealt with them. The truth is laid out now before me and I got grace and I get to come to God and his presence is right there every time. If you've come to church this morning, thinking that somehow you're going to come sit in church and get rid of your sin load and you're going to feel better and your guilt's going to be gone. You're working off the treasure map. The treasure's here. Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of that. Just receive him. And he satisfies God's need to bring guilt. And you are free to be in his presence. You're free to worship him with all your heart. He gave you the ultimate grace, the ultimate gift. And sometimes we we, we, we just forget we go back to the treasure map, and we forget we have the treasure. See, he says, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. In other words, you can know and be known. The beautiful grace of God through Jesus Christ is that you can know your creator you can know who he is from the word of God. You can know who he is by what he's made. You can know him deeply and intimately. Not all these rules and tabernacle and stuff to come to him. Nope, he's there, present, ready. The second part is that you can be known. Middle of the service, a lady comes up and she's like, I love that opening where you talk about how we're all supposed to, we all, how we'd act if this um, famous person was near us. And she's like, I was an international student and this guy came and sat next to me and suddenly all this crowd came surrounding him. And I'm like, well, who is this guy? It was Michael W. Smith. And all these people had surrounded this Christian college to talk to Michael W. Smith. And she's like, I don't know this guy from Adam because she's an international student. And, and suddenly she realized he didn't know me. I didn't know him. Had Jesus sat down next to me, he would have looked over and been able to tell me my name, tell me how I'm doing, how, you know, and, and instantly have been engaged in conversation because he knows me. God knows you that well. When you have the presence of God, he sits down next to you in a cafeteria. He strikes, the, strikes up the conversation with you even though everybody in the world wants to talk to him. This is the beautiful thing of the ultimate grace that we have. You have grace and truth. You can know God and you're known by God. And if you think that's a bad thing to be known by God, let me challenge you that perhaps being known by God is not scary because he's got grace to forgive you of the sins and the mess that we're hiding inside. How well can we know God? It should fuel our worship because Jesus made God known to us. Verse 18, which is the hinge point to the rest of the book. He says, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Wait a minute, you just said Moses did. No, Moses saw God's, like, hem of his garment, his backside, whatever, something passed by. That's how powerful just a hint of God is. He says, no one's ever seen God. Jewish thought was nobody could ever see God once. They would die immediately. But Jesus, as it's referencing, the only God who is at the Father's side, referencing verse 1, he has made him known. When you read about Jesus, when you look about who he is, when you see how he acts, you are reading about how God acts on the earth. God has become human to reveal himself to us. And this word here is called it, that made him known as the word exegete. It's what I'm trying to do with the text to make the text knowable by you. It's called exegesis in, in, in school. And what Jesus has done is he's come to exegete the Father, to live out the Father before us so that as you read about him in the Word, you can know him. And so your worship is fueled also by your knowledge of God that comes from the Word as you interact and get to know who God is and how he acts. And so I want to challenge you guys this morning, church, in, in a few ways. First of all, I want to challenge you with the idea. Are, are you approaching Christ for prayer? Do you realize that he was a man, and he is a man, and he sympathizes with our weaknesses, and he hears you? He knows what temptation is like. Maybe it's time to bring yourself to him and release that guilt. Maybe it's time to realize that God is so glorious and so amazing. It should burn in us in such fiery fervor that we would want to worship him with everything we have at work, in our plans, at home. Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God, the scriptures say. Or maybe it's just you need to get to know God a little better and be back in that word. There's one of these things can move us and motivate us. But I also want to challenge, maybe you have not received Christ yet. Maybe you have not begun this journey. You're still working off the treasure map. You think that life's all about doing good and being good. And you've judged yourself out. You're not good. You haven't done good. And so God wouldn't want anything to do with you. No, he's given you Jesus Christ to bear your sins on the cross so you could have a knowledge and access with God. Or maybe you've been working real hard to be good and you think I'm good and you think hey, I've done good and I want to tell you it's not good enough and that his grace is the only way. And so maybe God needs to speak to you right now, but I pray he would do one of those things as we bow our heads and the band that we're going to sing and, and just take some time with God. So, Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for the opportunities that we've had to get into your word. And, God, wherever you challenged us this morning in our hearts, whether it's in prayer or whether it's in worshiping you or whether it's in knowing you more, we ask that you would indeed just challenge our hearts. God, if we're far from you, please call us near to you.